Coming to verse 10 then and verse 11 of Revelation chapter 8. And the third angel sounded. There fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. With the Word of God open before us, we'll bow together, please, in a further word of prayer. What are the chances that I'll, in preaching today, reverse the name of the star? Fully expecting it. And call it, I really shouldn't say it, because I only put the thought in my head. And then I will be talking about woodworm rather than wormwood. So I'll just say wormwood again so that I will hopefully keep myself on track. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again to Thee we come today. We do thank Thee that we have the Word of God in front of us for our instruction. We come to a passage that may not be that straightforward in its intention. And much of Revelation, we know, can be obscured in some degree of mystery. We know it's a book all about Christ. We know what it does is it magnifies Him, shows Him in His majesty, reveals Him as King of kings and Lord of lords before whom every opposing system will crumble. We look forward to see the reality of that. But Lord, we know that it also reveals the nature of these opposing systems. And we see the opposition around us today. We're well aware that all of the forces of the devil are on the march and are being marshaled by him to attack the cause of Christ. We know that many, the love of many in these days, shall wax cold. And we certainly see the evidence of that. Churches closing, mission halls closing, churches struggling all over Belfast and further afield. And we pray the doubled long preserve lighthouses, spiritual lighthouses for the preaching and proclamation of thy word. Defeat the powers of darkness. Increase the abilities of those citadels of light we pray in Jesus' name and for His glory alone. Amen. The Bible is a book of stars. You will find pretty much a firmament here, and in that firmament you have the great lights that are shining, gleaming, and twinkling all around. And so, 
from Genesis right through to Revelation, you'll come across the stars. That early reference in Genesis 1, he made the stars also. A kind of statement that is in almost brackets, in parentheses, as much as it's a flyaway add-on comment, well, that's just what he did, expressive of his mighty power. But as we read on in the Word of God in Numbers 24, 17, we read, for example, about the star of Jacob, then Job, who is probably right in there in the book of Genesis timeline. And in Job 9 and 9, in Job 38 and verse 31, Pleiades and Orion are mentioned. Then we have the star in the east, of course, and that's in Matthew 2, that one that guided the hearts and gladdened their hearts as well, guided, guided the footsteps, I suppose, of the wise men that came looking for the Lord Jesus. We have seen, they said, His star in the east, and are come to worship Him. We read about in 2 Peter 1 and 19, the day star, that's a star that arises in the hearts of the people of God that cheers and gladdens them. Then we read on the other side of the sky, about wandering stars, that second last book in the Bible, Jude in the verse 13. And we're told there these wandering stars are false prophets spewing out falsehood everywhere they go, and to them it is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. We come into the final book in the Bible, Revelation, that we've come to today. And before we get to chapter 8 that we have read, we come in chapter 2 and the verse 28 to the bright and the morning star. And when we read that, we're thinking that is a wonderful picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He alone is the bright and the morning star. And before, just before the book closes, in chapter 22 and verse 16, he is described again as the bright and the morning star. But of all the stars that we find noted down in the Word of God, surely the one that we're looking at this morning is the most weird and intriguing of all. Wormwood. What a name for a star. The Greek word wormwood is a familiar bitter herb. But to reach up and name one of those heavenly orbs after a bitter herb of earth, it seems rather strange indeed. So we're looking at Revelation 8, the verse 10, the verse 11 here. It tells us everything we know about this unusual star. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. What we have here in the book of Revelation is a graphic and explosive piece of end-time prophecy, one that points to the apostasy that is going on today and will continue and accelerate as the end of time approaches. Now, when we come to this book, no doubt 
the end-time enthusiast thinks, right, we're going to get some end-time revelation here. We're going to get some of these affairs here that really spark my understanding and get me to the end of my seat, and I'm really drooling about that. Well, a warning today, I am not, though I'm coming to Revelation chapter 8, we're going to examine the storm wormwood here, I'm not going to be coming up with some far-fetched, wide-angle, Star Wars-style notion in the message today. So, if you think that you're, because we're turning to Revelation, going to hear something about Captain Scarlet and the Mr. Orms or something in that level, then get your space suit off and go home because that's not the area we're going to be trampling upon today. We want to do the passage justice as God revealed it and not let, as so many tend to do, let our imagination run riot on this. Consider, first of all, the description of this star, the description of this star. And the thirty angels sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter." going to make some basic points here, and they're right on the surface, so you and I will be able to pick them up straight away. First of all, the aspect or the elevation of Wormwood. The fact that Wormwood is a star, that talks about elevation right away. You'll find it described here in verse 10 as a great storm, and so it's attracting attention. It's large, it's brilliant, you can't miss it. The eye will readily pick it up. It appeals, therefore, to a large audience, and it's visible to them. But also in verse 10, we discover the star here once shone in the heavens, and the thirty angels sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven. Some in interpreting the passage here have thought the star Wormwood is a political figure. Others have thought, no, it's a theological character here. It's a man within the church, or it's a principle or a system that is religion-based. And I agree with the latter view, that a star wormwood is a picture of a religious person or system, or indeed of the end-time apostasy, that we are enduring today. This eighth chapter of the book of Revelation. What is it all about? It deals with God's chastisement that is brought to bear upon the earth. We have a volcanic mountain described in verse 8 and in verse 9. And that mountain is representing corrupt political power, mountain, speaking of government here, looking over the nations, arcing above them, but it is being judged in this instance here. Since the decline, the fall of the political government is matched here, stride by stride it is matched by the decline, by the fall, by the demise of the spiritual power, the power of religion, that becomes the next target for the judgment of God. And that's why we read about it in verse 10 and in the verse 11. 
The judgment is spearheaded by one who will rise in the last days, who will be exalted for a time as a star, who will appear to be giving light, who will be seen and thought upon by many, if not by all, as something splendid and worth following, but their legacy will be bitterness and devastation. What grounds are we to believe this? I think our Lord Himself gives a clue to the symbol here. Right at the beginning of the book, John, he's on the Isle of Patmos, he's in exile, he's receiving a vision of God, and he sees right at the beginning there seven stars in the right hand of the risen Savior. And then he explains what those seven stars in the Lord's hand represented in Revelation 1, 16, 20, and chapter 2 and the verse 1, and he tells us this, those seven stars, the angels of the seven churches are represented by those stars. And in that instance, they were religious figures. They were ministers. They were leaders. They were teachers of churches. And I think you get the dark side when you come to Revelation chapter 8, and we have this star Wormwood, representing a teacher, a teacher of great influence and reputation, who at one time appeared to be in close relationship with Christ or a system that bore his name, but was actually poison to the hearts and minds of the people. So I'm of the opinion today that this star named Wormwood is showing up that this teacher had become corrupt, had become heretical, had become full of religious error, had thrown away and trampled underfoot the truth of God's elect. It's not only the aspect or elevation, but the apostasy and error of Wormwood. In the Bible, Wormwood always stands as a picture of heresy. The people of Israel are warned. While they're only a nation, just a fledgling people, they're in their infancy. They're to develop into a large and great nation in time. But they are warned right at the beginning against idolatry. Don't import it. Don't bow down before graven images. Don't fall on your face before idols. Do not do it, because then you're defecting from the law of God. And so in Deuteronomy 28, 9 in the verse 18, we have God's warning, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, false gods around them, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And so the apostasy in the nation, idolatry there, is depicted as a root that beareth gall and wormwood. Then later on in the days of Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 9 and the verse 15, the Lord says, Therefore saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. Why would he do that? Because they'd broken his law. Because they'd turned their backs on him. And so like is punished with like. Error is to be added, compounded to those who have chosen to stagger along in the path of error. God is saying, you have wanted with all of your heart 
idolatry and falsehood and error. I'm telling you, I'm going to give you idolatry and falsehood and error until you choke on it. Paul, when writing to the epistle to the Ephesians, to the Hebrews rather, he counseled those to whom he was writing to look diligently, search around, be careful, lest any man feel of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And so he's saying, you know, in the church of Jesus Christ, if the root of bitterness comes, if it springs up, if it spreads, it'll defile not just one or two people, but many people. And so the Scripture is lending support here to this assertion. And there could be other interpretations, but to this assertion, that the star called Wormwood is a symbol of a religious system that has become heretical, it's treating in falsehood, it is promising sweetness, producing bitterness, it's promising light, but it's giving off darkness. And I hope you paid careful attention to the wording of Revelation 8 and 10, which says, the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. What do we learn about this once lofty storm? It descended, it fell. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven. So twice over in Revelation 8 and 10, this word is used. So this star, wormwood, descended like the Humpty Dumpty of the fictional world that had a great fall, this star certainly had a great fall, only we're dealing in fact and truth here. It once occupied a high place. And when it fell, notice what the Bible says, it fell from heaven. We're looking at apostasy here. The devil did this very thing. And all who follow him and take on his system, they do the very same thing. So we shouldn't be surprised. Many of those people who in our lifetime and way before we ever lived, many of those people who have come up with the most gross heresies that you can imagine, they have held positions within the church of Jesus Christ. They have been church leaders. They have been occupants of famous pulpits. They had a big name. They had a high position. They were highly regarded throughout the country in which they ministered and further afield. And the fact that they were great with a big reputation, it made them even more difficult to detect. And it makes it ten times harder for those poor souls who heard them when they were great to ever accept that they could have fallen. And you will know of many characters, and it can't be said the greatness of the star makes many oblivious of its evil quality. People were deluded. People didn't detect the fall. And now we have people who once stood for Christ, who lifted up the valuous, precious blood, and they're now demeaning it. How are they demeaning it? By saying, for example, it is all right to go along and attend the Roman Catholic Mass. There is no sin in that. You know what I like? The old Anglican statement when it came to the Mass, and they didn't pussyfoot about. They labeled it with the proper label, and they called it a blasphemous 
fable and a dangerous deceit. And even though people today may have dropped the defenses and betrayed Christ, it is still all that it has been categorized by in that book of common prayer. It is still a blasphemous fable and a dangerous deceit. There are people who tell us today it's all right as a professing Christian to go along and attend a same-sex marriage. Well, it is absolutely not because you're endorsing by your presence that which God has cursed. He calls it perversity. You cannot dare say it's a good and a wholesome thing. There fell a great star from heaven, and just over the past week or so, we've had people do the very things that have just been mentioned, people in church positions who have said, it's fine to do, as if God's Word and law had changed when it hasn't. It descended. Not only that, it degenerated, didn't just drop. It became worse. The third angel sounded, there fell a great star from heaven. Notice the descriptions here. There's a contrast. It fell, and at the point of its fall, it was once a great star, but then it burns, as it were, a lamp. And probably the margin of your Bible will give the word torch there for lamp. How do you get from a great star to just a burning torch? because there's a huge difference. That's why I say it degenerated. Reduced from the level of a brilliant star to that of a mere burning lamp. Up there in the lofty sockets of the heavens, it was a tremendously impressive star, but as it hurtled down through to the earth, it became nothing more than a burning lamp. A spark as opposed to once a star. Now it didn't shine. When it was a star, it shone. Now it scorches because it's burning as a lamp. It did not direct any longer. It destroyed. Instead of giving off brilliant light, its flames produced scorch marks, blackness, and this type of star has appeared again and again in human history. Let me give you some names, and we're not going to do for a whole history uh, lecture here, but we have Aries back in the third century, and he did deadly work back then because he stood up and he said, Jesus Christ is not God. The church believed that. The Bible teaches that. He said he, he is not God. He never could be God. He's nothing more than a man. He's a good man, of course. He's a grand man, of course. But he is only a man. And the teachings of Arius have flown on down through the centuries. In the Unitarian Church, following Arius. In the Jehovah's Witness movement, following Arius. His bitter teachings are still in vogue. Pelagius was a fourth century piece of wormwood. He opened the window and he tossed out. Original sin, he says, man has not 
fallen and he pumped up the human will and human ability and he embittered many, he destroyed many, and he is still in operation. The so-called prophet Muhammad rose up in the 7th century as the wormwood of the Muslims, and he's still going strong as well we know in the hearts of Muslim communities across the world. He's in and out through our schools. He's at our street corners. You've seen many people preaching at, for example, Hyde Park Corner in London or other parts of the UK or in Belfast here. And if you've got some people who will agitate the strongest against preaching, Jesus died, rose again for our sins, for our justification. They're right in there because Muhammad taught them that Jesus didn't die on the cross at all. The Pope, all 266 of them and more, because was it 298 or was it 271 or how many were there? They're at loggerheads themselves on that one. There were some times in history where you had two popes at the same time, and one occasion where you had three popes at the same time. Who was the right pope? But ever since its apostasy from the true faith back in the fourth century, Romanism has been synonymous with bitterness, destruction, and devastation spiritually, and many times physically too. No surprise that our United Kingdom is crumbling and rolling over and corrupting itself because it's dieting and huge helpings of Romanism. The star called Wormwood is spreading in its influence. Error is being propagated by religious teachers in our day. Heresy surrounds us, and it's become more prevalent and popular and accepted as the day of the Lord's return is drawing near. Iniquity shall abound, and it is. find it interesting, turning back into the archives, to read a comment by Simon Heffer. Some of you may remember the name. He wrote in the Daily Mail when it was in existence um, and going pretty well at the time. But way back in 1996, he wrote this, and it was on the back of the Don Blaine tragedy and massacre where the children were wiped out by that gunman. But here's what he, he said. When the tears have dried, the question will be this. Are we prepared to allow our ruling class to continue to destroy Britain's moral foundations? His argument was simply this. In the anything-goes kind of society that we have back then, the line that divides right from wrong has been blurred. Nothing really apart from sin or from murder is looked upon as sin anymore. Men have taken those Ten Commandments and they have blasted God's Word, those Ten Holy Commandments, into orbit. Nothing is left bar some fragments of the sixth, thou shalt not kill. And if somebody wants to live in defiance of God's order, then they can do it. If somebody wants to have an abortion, say nothing about it. It's nobody's business but theirs. If somebody wants to be promiscuous, it's their choice. They're free to make it. And so all of these sins have come piling in 
And every mechanism is being brought in in law today to prevent you and I and anybody else speaking against these iniquities. This is wormwood on display in front of us. Now, back there in the day, 1996, it was rather extraordinary to find that the Church of England, through the Archbishop of Canterbury in that day, Dr. George Carey, they were calling for a return to the absolute values of right and wrong, and that's a good thing. That in itself is a good thing. But how, how hypocritical was it? How hypocritical it was whenever at the same time he had presided over a church that had dragged down the nation into the gutters. A church that wouldn't censure blasphemy when it cropped up again and again in its own ranks. It was around the time that David Jenkins, who was one of their bishops, the Archbishop of York, in fact, who had launched a vile verbal assault on the blessed Son of God. It was a church as well that had called adultery and fornication as no longer meriting to be in the list of sins. It was a church that approved of homosexuality and legislated in that favor. A church that conducted blessings upon those unions. And a church that had a stack of homosexuals in its pulpits. And so it was so ironic and hypocritical to start calling for a return to absolute values of right and wrong. When it's a church headed for punishment because of the wormwood that is all about, the sorrow, not sweetness, the darkness, not the light. This apostate star was actually a vehicle of judgment. The type of language we have in Revelation 8 describes a meteor blazing its way through the air. That's an emblem of some kind of vessel that causes desolation or ruin. You don't want to be hit by it. You don't want to be impacted by it. It doesn't come to bless the world, but brings judgment on mankind. Its primary purpose, not to produce brightness, but to burn. Matthew Henry has said, corruptions of doctrine and worship in a church are in themselves great judgments. You can check it out in Zechariah chapter 11, the verse 4 to 14, the verse 16 as well. In Jeremiah, the chapter 5, the verse 13, and the verse 31 too, because there there's a shepherd raised up in the land, but he's not sent to seek the young one, or heal that which is broken, or feed that which stands still. But he shall, Zechariah says, eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Jeremiah says a wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 and 13, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So we have the description of the star. 
the devastation quickly by this storm. And our text again points out the devastation. The star leaves in its wake. In verse 10, it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. What's the result of that? Verse 11, the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. This bitter herb, rendered the water unfit for human consumption. It was undrinkable. So we're talking about the quality of this devastation. Wormwood, meaning bitterness, bitter affliction, sorrows, distresses, diseases, calamities, destruction, devastation. All of this came in the wake of this falling star. Those fountains and rivers, they were poisoned. What's it doing? But it's targeting the sources of life and refreshment. We're all dependent upon that water. It's taking the symbols here of spiritual blessing, fountains and rivers, and it's poisoning them. And how often have we found it that the very book of God, the Holy Scriptures, has been attacked. It's been mutilated. It's been perverted. A till the point where they get the holy scriptures of God and they have them manipulated and changed and divested of their power until they're suiting man's palate. And the book that by God was ordained to produce life, it's tasting like death. Heresy has swept the sweetness out of the great doctrines of the faith. Heresy has perverted the plain and precious truth of God's holy word. Heresy has got its way up to and poisoned the fountains of the water of life, and it turns sweetness into bitterness. What do we have then? Christ's atoning work on Calvary is replaced by man's own efforts. Repentance is replaced by ritual. Assurance of faith is replaced by uncertainty. The blood of Jesus by the waters of some baptismal font. And it's all bitterness. And such was the poison produced by wormwood. It spelt death for men. And so that's why we have it in Revelation 8 and 11. The name of the star is called Wormwood. The third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. An old congregational preacher, Dinsdale T. Young, said, It is easy to laugh at heresy and to jibe at orthodoxy and mock those who cry out for the truth and deprecate a heresy hunt but it remains that heresy kills souls. This is not a simple thing, a straightforward matter, a tiny little problem. This is a massive issue. Those who disseminate error are the murderers of souls. What did Jesus say of the scribes and the Pharisees? In Matthew 23, in the verse 13 and 15, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. In John 8 and 44, You're off your father the devil, the lust of your father ye will doom. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him when he speaketh of his own. He's speaking that lie. He is a liar. And the father off at this star called Wormwood caused men to die. And I wish our nation 
would wake up to the devastation that false pulpits are producing right across our land, pulling people into error, making them think they're fine when they're not, telling them they're headed for heaven when they're actually plummeting down into hell. What a terrible thing it is. And the true message of the gospel revealed, for example, in John 3 and 3, Jesus saying, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In Luke 13 and 3, your Savior again, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Acts 3 and 19, repent ye therefore, be converted, that your name may be blotted out. But what do the false teachers do? They say, oh, away with that material. That's not relevant to men and women in these modern days. Away with that kind of rubbish. And what they're doing is they're dishonoring God. They're denying Christ. They're impugning Scripture. They're destroying souls with their material, which is the rubbish of today. The quality of this devastation. Then we think of the quantity of this devastation. Notice how the influence of evil on the waters was of a widespread nature. And the third angel sounded, verse 10 in Revelation 8, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And if you would back up into the previous verses, you'll find already a third part have been turned into blood. Verse 11, and the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. One third already affected, now another third of the waters affected. Multitudes die. We're not talking about the mere contamination of water, such as people that try to ruin the water supply. It's much worse. It spreads over such a large area here. We've been treated for years with people, elites in society, who were aiming at population control, and they tried it through sterilization and the eugenics principles. On the back of Charles Darwin's proposals in the 19th century, we have it today with a lot of WEF initiatives. You need to be aware of those and study what they're doing and find out what it's all about. Widespread is the curse this star called Wormwood brings. And I'm pleading with you today, Look into the future. Consider what the effects of sin are going to be. Sweet nine, but definitely sour later, as evidence from Job 20, 12 to 14, and verse 16 and 23, and in Jeremiah 31 and 30 as well. But everyone shall die, we're told there, for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on age. If you come to the poison fountain, you're going to get bitterness. You're going to get devastation. It's going to bring death, and so it does. But I end on a happier note. The description of this star, devastation by this star, the deliverance from this star. It is a comfort that at least a third were spared 
And as I've said, consider verse 7 through to 11, and two-thirds are taken out here. But all the rivers and all the fountains and all the streams, thankfully, were not infected. All the sources of life and refreshment were not contaminated. Some part of them still retained their sweetness, and that encourages me. For I see a parallel in the spiritual world around me. Heresy has never been able to completely obliterate the truth. It has never been able to monopolize everything. It has never taken in the entire sweep of people on the earth. Yes, many men died as a result of the bitter waters, but many did survive. All spiritual light was not turned to wormwood. All the good was not embittered. Sweet rivers and fountains still flowed on. And so we read in Romans 11 and verse 5, even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace, and we praise God for that. People are still being saved. Grace from God is still flowing. I think of two incidents in the Bible, one recorded in Exodus 15, 22 to 27, waters that were bitter at Marah become sweet by the application of the branch that is cut down and thrown in, picturing Christ and His cross work on Calvary. The other appears in 2 Kings 4, 39 to 41, Elisha the prophet. And again, we have pottage and death in the pot, and he couldn't eat of it. Those who were eating were going to die, and meal was brought in. The good measure of God's Word so that there was no harm in the pot. And when you study the passages out, you're going to find here's where the solution is. In supplication. Am I just imagining it? Or does an earlier part of this eighth chapter of Revelation show us that the lessening of the terrible effects of the star called Wormwood, the lessening of that effects was due to what? The prayers of God's saints. That's what I see in verse 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. It's obvious there. The prayers of the children of God have kept many from the bitter streams, have preserved sweetness in rivers and in fountains. The prayers of God's people have kept the doors closed to the entrance of false doctrine, for the cries of the saints are more than a match for the star called Wormwood. Supplication, the Scriptures, the Word of God, that's where the answer is found. Keep it pure. The sacrifice, the work of Christ upon the cross is always the answer. What is the truth of Calvary? The truth is that we deserve to die. We deserve to be devastated and to be damned. Our sins demand that. Old Charles Simeon, the Anglican preacher, said, if we had had our just desert, there is not one amongst us who would not have been in the very depths of hell long, long ago. And I think all who were saved today will assent to that. That's how it is. On an old war veteran's mantelpiece, 
These words once hung, my sins deserve eternal death, but Jesus died for me. Men came in and read those words. They caught their eye. They caught their heart as well. In those two lines, they got the genius of the gospel. My sins deserve eternal death. I'm falling like wormwood, but here's the turning point. Jesus died for me. He was my substitute. He is the bright and morning star. He set aside the splendor of glory. He descended from heaven. He came to a cross for me. He took my place, my penalty, my punishment. He suffered and died for me. You know what he did? He drank the poison chalice, those infected waters, instead of me. That's the gospel. What does 1 Peter 3 and 18 declare? For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, quickened by the Spirit. See him with chapter 2 and 24, Galatians 3, 13, where he's redeeming us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. I close with this hymn. Death and the curse were in that cup. O Christ, t'was fool for thee, but I was drained. The last dark drop tis empty. Now for me that curse-filled cup, love drank it up. Now blessings draft for me. Leave the soreness of sin. Come into the sweetness of salvation. Rely on Christ. Repent of sin before him. See, is the only remedy that's in him, the only remedy for the enormous eternal consequences of our sin, he can turn sourness to sweetness and bring us safely home.